Well, we're going to just jump right into the word this morning. We have such a wonderful atmosphere. We're not going to we're not going to waste it. We're in our teaching series right now, which is called Awaken, Coming Alive Through Worship. And we are spending, we're actually going to end up spending seven Sundays on this because once we mapped out everything we wanted to share, we, uh, uh, we covered seven Sundays. So this is part two of a seven-part series. Last week, part one was called Wake Up. And we, we declared prophetically that God is calling us to wake up out of our slumber. And we looked at what sleeping means and all the different things it means and what it would look like in the spirit if we as a church or if we as individuals would wake up to what God is doing and respond to what he is doing. And so if you missed that message last Sunday, you can get it on our websites, uh, you can get it on our podcast, and you can catch up on what you missed. But we began to look at what worship is, right? Worship is us expressing our complete devotion and love to God. Worship is when we are obedient to God. Worship is when we are surrendered to God. It's not just when we're singing songs. It's every moment of every day when we are surrendered to God and being obedient to Him and all that He has called us to be. Worship is our response to who God is. Today, I want to introduce another layer to worship, and that is this. Worship is warfare. Worship is warfare. And the title of today's message is, There's a Giant in Your Garden. There is a giant in your garden. So let's look at this concept of warfare. Let's start with Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, in verses 3 through 7. Now Paul is, um, the church at Corinth had all kinds of problems. When you read the two books of the Corinthians, like it is just one long confrontation and correction. Paul was just continually butting heads with the Corinthians and trying to get them to come into alignment with the truth. On top of that, there were false prophets and false apostles that were coming in, creating confusion, telling the people that, that Paul was not a real apostle and that Paul was weak and timid and, and Paul wasn't a great public speaker, so they shouldn't listen to him. And so Paul is, is coming to the Corinthians and establishing his authority, and this is what he says. He says, in, starting in verse 3, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We are destroying speculations and every lofty thing that's raised itself up against the knowledge of God. We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, and we are ready to punish all disobedience whenever your obedience is complete. And then in verse 7, he says, you are looking at things as they are outwardly. He says, you're looking at this thing wrong. You're looking at these things as though they are outwardly. But the things that are happening are not things that you can see visibly with your eyes. It is a spiritual warfare that is taking place. And that's why Paul says, for though we walk in the flesh, we don't fight according to the flesh. And maybe that was your way and manner of life growing up. In the neighborhood, you had to fight to win your battles. You had to fight to earn your reputation. You had to fight to have some street credibility. But Paul says, though we walk in the flesh, that's not how we fight anymore. He says the weapons of our warfare are divinely powerful for what? The destruction of fortresses. And then he goes to describe this warfare. If you are going to warfare against a fortified city, 
There are a few things that you want to accomplish. The first thing you want to accomplish is you want to break down the strongholds of that fortification. The other thing you want to do is you want to bring down the ramparts. Why? Because the ramparts are up on top of the wall. That's where the archers are shooting arrows down at you. You don't want arrows raining down on you, so you want to bring down the ramparts. That's also where if you would get close to the wall of the city, they would burn, they would pour the burning oil over the ramparts, right? So when you're attacking a fortified city, you want to bring down those ramparts. And once you have broken down the strongholds and brought down the ramparts, then you can penetrate the city. And once you penetrate the city, you want to take the army captive. And then if anybody continues to resist you inside the city, you're going to punish that disobedience. That's your strategy when you're attacking a fortified city. And that's the exact strategy that Paul gives us when he's talking about the weapons of our warfare. First, he says, we are destroying speculations. In other translations, that word speculations is translated strongholds. We are destroying strongholds. And then we're taking down every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. That's the ramparts up high. We're going to take down the ramparts. And then he says, we're going to take every thought captive. And finally, we're going to punish all disobedience. We're going to use the weapons of our warfare. So where the enemy has strongholds in our life, we're going to break those things down. And where anything has raised itself up to be more important or more powerful than God, we're going to tear that down. And any thought in our mind that is contrary to God or any thought in our mind that the enemy would put there to steal us away from our faith, we're going to take those thoughts captive. And if anything in the spiritual realm is going to come against us, we're going to punish that disobedience. That is the weapons of our warfare. Now, let's keep this in balance. Ephesians 6.12 says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against the spirits and the principalities of darkness. So I want to be clear that Paul is not coming against the Corinthians themselves. He's not talking about waging war against the church he planted. He's talking about waging war against the spiritual powers that are causing the deception of the Corinthians, that are causing the Corinthians to fall away. So Paul says weapons of warfare, but he never says specifically what those weapons are. We can gather from reading the Bible that the weapons of our warfare are things such as fasting and prayer and worship. And so today I want to dive into this concept that worship is warfare. And if we are going to come against the fortified strongholds of the enemy in our life, we need to use the weapons of spiritual warfare. And we're going to look at worship today. And what we're going to do is look at a couple of examples from the Old Testament where worship was used to expel the enemy. You guys ready? The first one, we're going to jump back to 1 Samuel chapter 17. And this is a story you might be familiar with. It's the story of David and Goliath. 1 Samuel chapter 17, let's start by reading the first three verses here. It says, Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sukkot, which belongs to Judah. And they camped between Sukkot and Azekah in Ephes-Demim. Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up in battle array to encounter the Philistines. The Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with the valley in between them. So they have lined up for battle. 
You got the Philistine army, the enemies of the people of God are on one side of the valley. And on the other side of the valley, you got the Israels lined up for battle. But what I want you to focus on is the name of the city. It says the Philistines were gathered at Sukkot. Why is that a big deal? Well, first off, it says they were gathered at Sukkot, which belongs to Judah. If it belonged to Judah, why were the Philistines dwelling there? Why did they allow the Philistines to dwell somewhere that belonged to them? But the other thing I want to focus in on is what Sukkot means in the Hebrew. Sukkot means to reach out to cover, to reach out to protect. It's also been translated as a hedge, right? Because if you wanted to protect your garden, you would build a hedge around your garden to protect your garden. So Sukkot is their covering, their protection. Sukkot is their hedge, and yet the enemy is in their garden. The enemy is inside their hedge. It's supposed to belong to them, but instead an enemy is there, and not only an enemy army, but starting in verse 4, it says that out of this army walks forward their champion, a man named Goliath. Goliath stood nine feet, nine inches tall. He was a giant of a man. It says that the chain mail armor that he wore, just the chest plates, weighed 126 pounds. Some of you in here don't even weigh 126 pounds. Just his chest plate weighed that much. He had a big old spear. Just the tip of his spear weighed 15 pounds. And he had a giant curved sword on his back. And it says he wore a helmet made of bronze. And this giant walks out when everybody's lined up for battle and begins to mock the armies of Israel. There was a giant in their garden. Why was there a giant in their garden? First off, they let them in, they let them in there. They let the giant come in. See, sometimes... When we have spiritual strongholds in our lives, it's because we've let it in. Because we've compromised somewhere in our walk with God. It's because we've believed a lie somewhere. And because of that compromise or because of believing that lie, we have allowed the giant to come into our garden and set up a stronghold there. But there's a second reason why the giant is in your garden. And that's because you let him stay there. He doesn't have any right to stay there unless you let him. And how do you let him stay there? You make it comfortable for him there. You don't fight him. You don't speak against him. You don't argue with him. You don't push back against him. You just let him set up camp in your garden and you let him hang out there. There is a giant in your garden. And what happens for 40 days this giant walks out and mocks the armies of Israel, mocks their God, and he challenges them to a one-on-one, -on mano-e-mano. Hey, let's not all fight. You just send one guy to fight me. And if your one guy can kill me, we'll retreat, we'll surrender. But nobody from the Israelite army was willing to go forward. Nobody was willing to do anything about this giant in their garden. For 40 days, they sat there and did nothing while this giant mocked them. Until a young man comes on the scene. 
At this time, we know that David is younger than 20 because if he was 20, he would have been in the army because 20 was the age of enlistment. So he was younger than 20. So he was probably late teens, 17, 18 years old. Not old enough yet to go to war. But his dad says, I want you to go to the front lines and bring some supplies to your brothers because his older brothers were old enough to be in the army. When David gets there, he hears this giant mocking the army of Israel, and he looks around like, why isn't anybody doing anything? And you know what their answer is? Have you seen this guy? That's actually what they said. It's in the Bible. They say, have you seen this guy? He's huge. But David, this young man who's too young to sign up for the army. That's right. He was too young to know any better. Amen. He decides to do something about it. And so let's pick up the story in verse 41. It says, Then the Philistine came on and approached David with a shield bearer in front of him. So not only is he nine feet nine inches tall with giant armor and giant weapons, he's also got a guy standing in front of him holding a shield so you can't even get close to him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy with a handsome appearance. Right? You got to figure Goliath was probably ugly, right? He hated David because he was small and because he was good looking. Okay, so verse 43, the Philistine says to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. So now he's mocking David. He's actually offended that they would send somebody so small to fight against him. But here's where David steps forward. And what does David begin to do? He begins to prophesy. He begins to declare exactly what God is going to do before God does it. Right? It's one thing to celebrate what God does after he does it. But it takes a whole other level of faith to prophetically declare what God is going to do before God actually does it. Look at verse 45. Then David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword, a spear, and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down, and I will remove your head from you. When was the last time you talked to Satan like this? When was the last time when there was a giant in your garden you talked like this? Right? We just get more like, would you please go? Come on, it really hurts. I'm really depressed right now. Could you go away, please? No, David says, this day, the God whom you're mocking is going to bring you down, and I'm going to remove your head from your body. Whew, we need to start talking to the enemy a little differently. Come on. And I will give the dead bodies of the army of the Philistines this day to the birds of the sky and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. When we fight against the giant in our garden, everyone around you knows that God is real. When we defeat the giant in our garden, everybody around us knows that God is real. And that all of this assembly 
may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. So not only are the Philistines going to know that God is real, David is saying, even my people, the Israelites, need to learn a lesson here. To not be afraid because of a big spear or a big sword, but to know that the battle belongs to God. And then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to David that David ran quickly toward the battle line. How many of us, when the giant is moving towards us, we run right towards him? When our tendency in our flesh is to run and hide, to be afraid, David ran straight at the giant. And it says David put his hand into his bag and took out from it a stone the Bible says it was a smooth stone. It was a river rock that he had collected from the dry riverbed. It was a smooth stone, and he slung it. He had a sling, and it struck the Philistine on his forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. Why is it interesting that the stone sank into his forehead? Because the Bible already just said that Goliath was wearing a bronze helmet. River rock, especially smooth river rock, doesn't tend to pierce through metal. But this one did. It pierced through metal and sunk into his forehead. And the giant fell face first onto the ground. Thus, David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. And he struck the Philistine and killed him. But there was no sword in David's hand. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine took his sword, drew it out of his sheath, and killed him and cut off his head with it. He cut off the giant's head with the giant's own sword. There is a giant in your garden. So you say, what does this have to do with worship? Well, that comes down to the question of, why was David willing to fight this giant when none of the other people of God were? What was different about David versus all of these other people. And the answer is that David was a worshiper. That's the difference. The army of Israel, yeah, they were God's chosen people, but they were just going through the motions. Their king Saul had already abandoned God. There wasn't true worship going on. But David, David was a worshiper. You see, David was a shepherd. And at that time, there was nothing glorious about being a shepherd. It was about the crappiest job you could have, <laughs> literally, because <laughs> they poop in the field. Okay, but it was the worst job you could have, and you give it to the youngest, smallest kid in the family because nobody else wants to do it, and so David was a shepherd. He would sit out in the field for hours by himself watching sheep. It's a pretty boring job, so what do you do for hours when you're sitting by yourself? Well, David had a harp and he played his harp and he worshiped God in our culture here it'd be the ukulele right you get your uke out and you just start worshiping David just sat out in the field worshiping God for hours every day so when David showed up to the battlefield and he heard a giant mocking God's army he hadn't been listening to the mocking words for 40 days. He'd been with God for 40 days. And when he showed up, he didn't buy in 
to the mocking that was coming from the giants. Everybody else had. You want to be a giant slayer? You want to get the giants out of your garden? You need to stop listening to the giants. You need to pick up your ukulele, and you need to start spending some time with God and start listening to what God says, not what the giant says. David was a worshiper. Before he was a giant killer, he was a worshiper. Before he was a prophet, he was a worshiper. Before he was a king, he was a worshiper. Before he was anything, he was a worshiper. And the same thing will be true in our lives. We all have great destinies before us. We all have great things that God has called us to do. But before any of us will step into that destiny, we've got to be worshipers first. We've got to get some giants out of our garden first before we can see clearly our destiny. And you see, what happened in that moment as David walked up to that front lines and he hears the giant mocking, what happened is David's purpose came into alignment with his passion. You see, to truly discover our destiny, to truly slay giants, our passion has to come into alignment with our purpose. See, there's a lot of things I'm passionate about, and they make my life more exciting, but they don't necessarily produce the miraculous. Right? I'm passionate about football, but my passion for football doesn't produce anything miraculous. If it did, the Chargers would win more. Okay, let's be honest. All right? I am passionate about bodyboarding, but my passion for bodyboarding doesn't produce anything miraculous. But I'm also passionate about Jesus. And when I am passionate about Jesus and that passion for Jesus comes into alignment with my purpose, what I'm supposed to be doing for God, the miraculous takes place. And so the scary thing is when you come into moments of destiny, when you step into moments of purpose, and there's no passion to align with it. Because you haven't developed any passion for God. You haven't been a worshiper. And suddenly you're in a moment of destiny, and you're not ready to step into it. Because you didn't develop your passion ahead of the purpose. David had developed his passion for years sitting out in the field as a shepherd. And when he stepped into his moment of purpose, the passion and the purpose aligned, and David accomplished something miraculous. And he won a victory for God, and he became a giant slayer. He became a prophet that day. He became a warrior that day. And soon after that, he would become a king. There is a giant in our garden. And it's time to stop being okay with it. Let's look at one other example. Jehoshaphat, King Jehoshaphat. He was a king of Judah. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, listen to this, verses 1 through 4. Now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Maonites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. So you've got three nations against one, three armies against one. Then some came and reported to Jehoshaphat, saying, A great multitude is coming against you from beyond the sea, out of Aram, and behold, they are in Hazanon Tamar, that is, En Gedi. Jehoshaphat was afraid. You notice it's okay to be afraid. We think that being courageous and strong means never being scared, but that's not true. It's okay to be afraid. Jehoshaphat was afraid. It's okay to be afraid as long as you do the next thing Jehoshaphat did. And he turned his attention to seek the Lord. 
And he proclaimed a fast throughout all of Judah. So Judah gathered together to seek help from the Lord. They even came from all the cities of Judah to seek the Lord. A huge army is coming. Bigger than they could handle themselves. And they're scared and they're overwhelmed. So what do they do? They activate the weapons of warfare that Paul was talking about. They gathered together. They fasted and they prayed and they worshiped. Skipping ahead to verse 14. As they're fasting and praying and worshiping, a prophet stands up. The prophet is a man named Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, the son of Jael, the son of Metaniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. And he said, listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, thus says the Lord to you. Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Didn't we just hear that with David also? One of the keys to being victorious and worshiping through our warfare is recognizing who the battle belongs to. The battle doesn't belong to you. It doesn't matter that you're not big enough or strong enough. That doesn't matter because God is. And it's not your battle, it's his. And as long as we think it's our battle, we're going to get discouraged because we're not big enough. But when we remember that it's God's battle, we'll be just fine because God is always big enough. Tomorrow, go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. You need not fight in this battle. You don't have to fight. Some of us today were exhausted because we've been doing all the fighting and the giant hasn't been moving. You don't need to fight in this battle. Station yourselves. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. Skipping ahead to verse 21. So when he had consulted with the people, listen to what he did. He appointed those who sang to the Lord and those who praised him in holy attire as they went out before the army and sang, give thanks to the Lord for his loving kindness is everlasting. God spoke prophetically, the battle is mine, you don't have to fight. So Jehoshaphat takes him at his word and what does he do? He sends out the worshipers. He doesn't send out the army for battle. He sends out the worshipers for battle. He wants the worshipers to march in. Can you imagine the faith it took to be a worshiper in that day? Right? Like, are you sure, king? Not even a shield in front of us or anything? No, nope, no weapons. Nope, just your trumpets and your leers and your voices. You guys go first. All the guys wearing armor, they're in the back. That takes some faith to step out. And your only weapon is your voice and the instrument in your hand. And you've got to trust that God is going to win the battle. But check out what happens. Verse 22. When they began singing and praising, the Lord set ambushes against the sons of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who had come against Judah. So they were routed. 
For the sons of Ammon and Moaz rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. All three armies turned on each other and killed each other down to the very last man. Can you imagine being the last one alive? You're looking around. Everyone's dead except for you. It was like a moment of rage. Nobody knew what happened. And all of a sudden, you're just going, what the heck? What did we just do? Everybody's dead. What just happened? And then verse 24. Here's my favorite part. When Judah came to the lookout of the wilderness, they looked toward the multitude, and behold, they were corpses lying on the ground, and no one had escaped. They showed up for war, and the war was already over. They thought they were going to find an army. All they found was a field of dead bodies. Why? Because the Lord set the ambushes. I can't even imagine what it would look like for God to set ambushes, right? What did those people see that caused them to start fighting each other? What was it that freaked them out and confused them so terribly that they killed everybody that was there in the field with them? What do the ambushes of God look like? That's just fun to think about. They came to the field for war, and all they found was corpses. And then verse 25. When Jehoshaphat and his people came to take their spoil... They found much among them, including goods and garments and valuable things which they took for themselves, more than they could carry. And they were three days taking up the spoils because there was so much. Not only did they not have to fight the battle, it took them three days to collect all the reward from the battle. A battle they didn't even have to fight. Why? Because the worshipers went first. And when the worshipers go first... God goes before you. God drives out the army from your garden, and you don't even have to fight. All you have to do is stand in the garden and experience the blessings of the victory. That is why worship is warfare. So can we talk about today the giants in our garden? Let me have the worship team come back this morning. I got to tell you what. I have been excited about this moment right now since Tuesday afternoon when Pastor Danae and I sat down and we put together this order of service and I knew exactly what song we were going to be singing right now in this moment. I've been excited for this moment since Tuesday afternoon. And I knew that God would do good stuff through the whole service, Whew, but this was the point in service I was looking for. There are giants in your garden. It could be the giant of marital discord. Your garden is supposed to be a place of peace in your marriage, but instead there's marital discord in your garden. The giant in your garden could be wayward children. Your children were supposed to be your possession, the glory of the inheritance that you had in God. But there's a giant in your garden because your children have walked away. The giant in your garden could be poverty and lack. Every day you have to fight the battle of not having enough, not knowing where your food is coming from and where you're supposed to feel the goodness of God and walk in the favor of God. There is the giant of poverty in your garden. The giant in your garden could be depression or anxiety or any other mental illness. 
and where you're supposed to experience the peace of God in your garden, instead there is just chaos and discord in your mind because the giant of mental illness has set up camp in your garden. The giant in your garden might be the temptation of sin that you keep giving into. And where you're supposed to be walking in the holiness of God, the giant in your garden is that same sin over and over again. I keep going back to it. There is a giant in your garden. So what are we going to do? We're going to worship. That's what we're going to do. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air. Think about that. Satan is the prince of the power of the air. That means that he has dominion over the air that is all around us. In the spiritual realm, Satan has dominion over the air that is all around us. So what does that mean? That means every time we disturb the air, we're disturbing the kingdom of Satan. So how do we disturb the air? We send vibrations through it. Every noise you make sends out vibrations that disturb the air. So that means that every time you clap, you're sending out a vibration that disturbs the dominion of Satan. Every time you shout with your voice, you're sending out a vibration that disturbs the dominion of Satan. Bob, every time you bang on those drums, you're sending out a vibration that disturbs the dominion of Satan. Every time we make a noise. Think about Gideon's army. If you did your rooted Bible reading this week, Judges chapter 7, 300 people, all blew trumpets at the same time. Those trumpets sent vibrations through the air that confused the army of Midian, and they scattered. Every time we make a noise, we disrupt the dominion of Satan. We've been dealing with hurricanes a whole lot over the last month, and I learned something new when I was watching the news with Hurricane Lane. I learned about this concept of wind shear. I had never heard that phrase before. But apparently, when a hurricane comes into your waters and the air is still, there is nothing to stop that hurricane. There's nothing to slow it down. There's nothing to break it up. It's going to stay at full power as it moves through your waters because there is still air. But when there is wind shear, when there are high-level winds blowing, when that hurricane comes into your waters, those high-level winds break up the organization of the hurricane, cause chaos within the storm, and that hurricane begins to dissipate and break apart. When the hurricane comes into your waters, you don't want it to find still air. That's right. You want it to find air that's moving. And when the giant comes into your garden, you don't want the garden finding still air so that he can hang out and be comfortable. When the giant comes into your garden, you want to be disrupting his dominion by shouting, by singing, by clapping your hands, by making prophetic declarations. Worship is warfare. Will you stand with me today? We are going to create our own wind shear today. We're going to begin to move the atmosphere today. We're going to begin to go to war. There's a giant in your garden, and it's time to start talking to him a little bit different. Yeah. It's time to stop being so polite. It's time to stop being so timid. It's time to move some giants out of the garden. It's time to see God move before us, fight the battle for us, so that we can enjoy the blessings of the garden. We can gather the spoils of victory. Amen? Amen. 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 Each one of us, we know what our giant is. As Kauai Bible Church, I believe there's a giant in our garden. It's a giant that is holding us back 
from seeing the glory of God move in such a way that a revival would break out upon our island. There is a giant in our garden that is stopping us from winning people for Jesus. We're not winning enough people for Jesus. There's a giant in our garden that is causing marriages to struggle even within our church. There's a giant in our garden. And we're going to go to war right now. We're going to start talking to him different. We're going to sing a song. It might be new to you. It might not. But it's a real simple song. You'll learn the words real quick. And we're just going to worship like crazy. We're going to go to war right now. We're going to march against the enemy. We're going to shout. We're going to sing. We're going to stomp our feet. We're going to clap our hands. We're going to make all the noise that we can, knowing that God is going to go before us, and God is going to move the giant out of our garden today. Amen? Amen. Let's go to war right now.